welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. Some people have described it as, as a tinderbox, just waiting to, to spark and for some of these simmering tensions to come to the surface uh, and, and revert back to conflict. For this episode of the War Studies podcast series, former British Army officer and alumnus Aid Clulo joins me to discuss his new book, Under a Feathered Sky, a unique first-hand account of his work on the ground supporting NATO during one of its most profound periods of change in Kosovo's turbulent history. We'll talk about the volatile security context, clash of cultures, balancing family life and the past, present and future of Kosovo's independence. I was in the centre of Mitrovica on the ethnic Albanian side of Kosovo's most divided town, together with Major General Raman Rama, the Deputy Commander of the Kosovo Protection Corps, commonly known as the KPC and Simi, my interpreter. Dressed in civilian clothes, surrounded by local residents inside a smoke-filled cafe, with British troops patrolling on the street outside, we were waiting for a member of the KPC to arrive. He had agreed to meet us, even though he did not know the reason why. When he walked through the door, we all got up from our table, Major General Rama leading the greetings. The man shook our hands in turn, and we waited for him to sit down. After much scraping of chairs, a silence quickly filled the space between us. He looked confused, as well he might. His deputy commander had travelled from Kosovo's capital city, Pristina, at short notice, specifically to see him. This didn't happen every day. Major General Rama explained that he wanted to talk to the man about his son. His look deepened as concern spread across his face. With Simi translating quietly to me on the opposite side of the table, Rama told him what we knew. The man said little, but his shock was tangible. After finishing his explanation, and to my surprise, Rama turned and asked me to speak to him. I'd been in the country for barely five days, but it was not difficult to find the right words to reinforce Rama's message. Thinking quickly, I looked him in the eye and spoke carefully. I urged him to use his influence to avoid something terrible happening that would likely stir up tensions in the town and potentially across the country. There was no time to waste. Acting now was crucial to avoid the world changing for many people, including his family and friends. When I finished my words, translated through Simi, I sat back. The meeting was brief. The man excused himself and we stayed to finish our coffees. My mind drifted as I reflected on the significance of what we had just done. It was a situation that I never expected to have to deal with, at least not so soon. Only a week earlier, I'd been pushing my daughter on a swing in a local play park in England, enjoying the last few days with my family before deploying on a six month tour of duty in Kosovo. Within a few days, 
I was already playing my part in shaping the future of the Balkans' newest independent country. It only occurred to me later that the British Army soldiers, who had patrolled past the cafe that afternoon, had done so to provide protection, a visible deterrence in the immediate vicinity of our crucial meeting. Their presence was no coincidence. Nothing happened by chance in Kosovo. Welcome to the War Studies podcast. My name is Danny McDivitt and I am the Communications Officer in the School of Security Studies. Um, I'm presenting today's episode featuring Aid Clulo, MBE, as an alumnus of the Defence Studies Department at King's College London and a former British Army officer. Aid served for 25 years in operations around the world, including Baghdad and Kosovo, reaching the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Since leaving the military, he has worked in a number of security sector-related roles, including delivering strategic communications in Somalia for the UN and conducting defence reform in the Middle East. This podcast episode opened with him reading an extract from his book, Under a Feathered Sky, which is a first-hand account of the dramatic events of 2008-2009 when he was deployed to Kosovo to be NATO's eyes and ears inside the Kosovo Protection Corps, the KPC, Kosovo's revered civil emergency organisation. The book paints a vivid picture of the highly politicised environment amongst a divided international community exposing a clash of cultures and offers unique insight into NATO's role in supporting the newly independent Many thanks for joining us today, Aid. So to start, could you briefly pick up from the where we heard you tell and explain how and why you were deployed to Kosovo and why you were in a position to write the story? Hello, Danny. Thank you very much indeed. Yes. Um, so I was at Staff College and I selected Kosovo as my uh, next tour of duty uh, after the course finished. I had nine months to fill and I needed to, uh, needed to do something overseas uh, before I took up a command appointment. So I arrived in Kosovo in the August of 2008. Uh, Kosovo had just been through a fairly tumultuous period because they had declared independence from Serbia on the 17th of February 2008. So it was within six months of, of that moment in their history. And so there was a, a great deal of excitement about what that meant for people in Kosovo, but also there were some very technical implications of that. Um, essentially, when the Kosovo Protection Corps was created in 1999. It was a UN-administered body um, because the UN was administering Kosovo post the war with Serbia. Um, as a consequence of declaring independence, the, the UN-endorsed plan, the Atasari plan, and Atasari was a former Finnish president, uh, the plan dictated that the Kosovo Protection Corps, the KPC, uh, needed to dissolve by June of 2009 uh, and it would be replaced by a new multi-ethnic civilian-led security force uh, of around two and a half thousand people uh, as well as a creation of uh, a new ministry of the Kosovo security force ministry of the KSF and this would be done under the executive authority of NATO so when I arrived in August 2008 I was as you described I was the eyes and ears for uh, the NATO force in Kosovo, Kosovo force, K4. I was basically a liaison officer with the senior leadership of the KPC. And so as a consequence of that, I was trusted by the NATO force to pass messages to the KPC, 
and for the KPC to be able to do the same and use me to uh, communicate back into K4. And not in the sense that I was just simply passing messages, but uh, often I was able to share on both sides how things were going with uh, with each organization so there was primarily the role to was to avoid any misunderstandings and to make sure that everybody was pulling in the same direction basically and so so when i arrived that was my role to work as a, a essentially liaison officer mentor um, and at times confident of the kosovo leadership and and also to to make sure that i was going to be doing uh, the bidding for uh, what K4 needed. Uh, and I knew from the day that I arrived, and in fact, I knew beforehand that uh, I was going to be arriving at an extremely sensitive time. Great, thanks, Ed. And for the benefit of those listeners who perhaps don't know as much about the security context in which your book takes place, could you give a brief overview and what you mean when you describe in your book that the newly independent country of Kosovo was nestled in Europe's most unstable and politically fragile region? So um, the security context was quite unusual. Um, after the war in 99, an international military presence was deployed to Kosovo to provide both protection uh, against any sort of external attack into Kosovo, but also to try and maintain the uh, peace within the country. Because uh, within Kosovo itself, there are Serbian enclaves. Of course, it's bordered with Serbia. Uh, and uh, the the ra- rationale at the very beginning was to ensure that a, a, an independent force zone, and it was essentially led by uh, by NATO, uh, even though there were non-NATO countries that uh, were also part of that force. Um, but it was there to maintain a safe and secure environment and to ensure freedom of movement throughout the at the time the territory of Kosovo. So there were sixteen thousand. K4 troops deployed in Kosovo uh, spread around the country, including up in the north of of the country, which was predominantly uh, Serbia, north of the river Ibar in Mitrovica. Uh, And as I said, there were other Serbian enclaves in the country that uh, also needed a degree of protection at certain times uh, in the the nine years prior to me arriving. But not only were there 16,000 K4 troops on the ground in Kosovo when I was there, but there were many, many representatives from the United Nations, from uh, a new mission that had just deployed as well, uh, an EU mission, ULEX. And there were many other international organizations that were operating in Kosovo, the OSCE as well, for example. So there were literally thousands of internationals living and working in Kosovo, as well as uniformed and non-uniformed individuals who were all engaged to one uh, degree or another in trying to maintain a safe and secure environment, but also to try and move Kosovo forward and uh, to help it build its institutions so that it could be an effective self-governing country. So, of course, when in, in February 2008, uh, independence was declared and and countries around the world started recognizing Kosovo, everything started to change. It was a sovereign country. The United Nations role clearly needed to start to reduce because Kosovo had effectively said, we're, we're an independent sovereign nation. 
uh, and we're going to do this uh, ourselves now uh, with the help that we want going forward. Now, it didn't quite work out like that when I was there, but that was a sentiment. And so it was a very busy place. I, I used to say that one in three vehicles that would drive past was an international vehicle of some description, whether it was a military vehicle or a UN vehicle, etc. So it was a very, uh, it's a, it a highly supervised country to be in. And, uh, and that shaped the way that the local political environment uh, operated as well, because of the amount of what some people perhaps would describe as interference in, in, in the way that Kosovo wanted to run its own affairs. But of course, others would see that as providing vital support in, in, in the areas of governance and administration and, and, and a whole wide range, including security, a whole wide range of areas. And so in the book, when I described uh, Kosovo as, uh, as nestled in Europe's most unstable and politically fragile region, what I meant by that was that clearly the breakup of the former Yugoslavia was, was, a, was not a, a particularly peaceful um, process. There was a decade uh, of, of dreadful conflict uh, right through the entirety of, of what was the former Yugoslavia. And and Kosovo was the final chapter in the breakup of that uh, former communist country. And even today, uh, and not just in Kosovo, but uh, across the region, there are simmering tensions. There are, there are issues that haven't been resolved. There are issues that uh, are, are causing uh, all sorts of challenges for incumbent uh, governments in the region. And some people have described it as, as a tinderbox, just waiting to, to spark and for some of these simmering tensions to come to the surface uh, and, and revert back to conflict. Now, the vast majority of people don't want that to happen, but nonetheless, uh, it still remains a very unstable part of, uh, of Europe and, and it's uh, to be ignored at our peril, I think. Okay. And just um, as a, just a follow-up question, so as they were such an um, unstable region, were they accepting of assistance from other countries such as the UK, or were they more, as um, is commonly the case, quite defensive? So that's a really good question because Kosovo very much saw the UK and the US as, as their saviours in a way, the, the UK and, and the Prime Minister at the time was very strongly opposed to the activities of Serbian forces inside Kosovo in the build-up to the war in 1999. And, and so when the air campaign, the NATO air campaign began, uh, that was very much because of the, the US President and the UK Prime Minister's leadership in, in making this happen. So, so the Kosovans that I was dealing with, and generally the Kosovans that I, I met and spent time with, institutionally respected the UK um, and, and were, were pleased that we were still involved. Uh, in, in one in one way or another within Kosovo. So at no time did I personally find a a resistance to to what we were trying to do. But there were voices there who did not like such international inf uh, interference as they saw it. There were some who didn't like the fact that there was Serbian influence within Kosovo, and that some elements of the international community condoned that Serbian influence and sometimes actively encouraged it. So uh, I'm not in any way trying to paint the picture that, uh, that there was 100% happiness that, that this was happening. But Kosovans are pragmatic, if nothing else. 
and uh, whilst there was a political movement that was very strongly opposed to the uh, in the influence and the undermining of its sovereignty particularly by serbia but but by those those organizations that as i say supported it there was that pragmatism that uh, that enabled us to certainly enabled me to get on with doing what i needed to do because of that institutional respect that the uk and particularly the british army had with the individuals that I was dealing with. Okay, great, thank you. And while we're sort of mentioning the relationship with um, the country and the military, you evidently took a highly empathetic and immersive approach to forming relationships on the ground and seem to have been welcomed in by the Kosovans in a way perhaps different to previous liaison officers. Um, so if you could just touch on how you gained their trust and achieved the level of integration which enabled you to write the book. So, so I'm smiling um, with you having asked that question um, because that approach doesn't always work and uh, maybe I'll, I'll touch on that. You know, my, my approach has always been to to listen to people and to understand as much as I can about the environment in which they're living and they're having to operate. I read a book before I, I, I deployed to Kosovo by Noel Malcolm. It's a very well-known book. And it very much set the scene for, for what I was going to be walking into. And, and it was actually great pre-reading because it, it gave me that history right back to the 14th century that's so important to both sides of the debate, if you like, both the Serbian and the Kosovo-Albanian sides. But when I arrived, as I said in, in my previous answer, my British Army uniform was, a, was respected, almost regardless of who was, was wearing it. But of course, your personality comes out uh, in, in, as you begin to form relationships. And not everybody does get that right, and and you suggested that I I was perhaps in some way closer than 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 other or previous liaison officers in my role, and I was the nineteenth to do it. I wouldn't say that. I, I I know that there was some some of my previous incumbents in that role did brilliant jobs, and uh, and and I I felt very much that I was privileged to be able to do. Uh, to to fill the post myself, and I and I th I think it's how I approach people in general. I I I want to understand their situation. I want to understand the challenges they have, and 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 why they behave the way they do, and why they have the beliefs that they do. And you can only really do that by listening, by being patient, and and really demonstrating that you're happy to sit for a long time if necessary. Um, drinking endless cups of coffee and sometimes something a little bit stronger in Kosovo to listen and to and to join in and i I speak Portuguese and i I've spent a lot of time in in the com in the company of Portuguese uh, people and particularly in the early days where I really didn't understand that much but if you're in a group who are speaking a, a language that is is kind of foreign to you even if you do have as I did in Kosovo, I had a, an interpreter, I had Simi with me, but he wasn't always with me. And so when a joke is told and everybody laughs, you laugh too. Even if you have absolutely no idea what people are laughing at, you can empathize with the conversation. And they know that you don't necessarily understand what you're laughing at or smiling about, but they recognize that. And, and, and I think people see that as, as somebody who is, is just really trying to engage and immerse themselves in their lives and and I think for me that 
that was really important from the very beginning to be able to do that. And it was very important when things got difficult later, when I needed to say things that were not particularly palatable or that challenged their own thinking, I felt more able and more confident to be able to do that because I had, I believe I had gained their trust. And, uh, and, and so I, I really, you know, it's all about getting under the surface and I believe that's what I, I managed to do um, relatively early on in, in my tour. Great, thanks. Um, and the book touched on the clash of cultures in terms of the conflicting agendas between NATO, K4, the KPC, local politicians, international stakeholders. What exactly were these different bodies and why were they clashing and what impact did this have on the work that you were trying to do? So, yes, there were a lot of organisations that were involved in, in the security sector transition, uh, not least uh, K4, who were uh, meant to be driving the process, although they changed the language from executive authority to supervision, which very much changed the way that things actually happened on the ground. UNDP were involved because they were putting together um, the resettlement package for those members of the KPC who were unsuccessful in joining the Kosovo Security Force. The UN was involved because they, they administered the KPC and there was a, a UN officer, a senior officer, who was effectively the minister for the KPC and worked and operated in government circles in, in Pristina. He was a British officer, British general. So there were many stakeholders who had a different view about how this transition was going to take place. But there were also, of course, those in the Kosovo Protection Corps, the people in the Kosovo Protection Corps, um, as well as local politicians who all had a very strong view. And I've talked about this because I've met several who uh, reached out to me or I reached out to them, but they, they all had a view about how the Kosovo Protection Corps should, should close, about the, the makeup and size of the new Kosovo security force. I, I sat with Ramush Haradinaj um, and I met him several times. Uh, he went on to be the prime minister. He was very keen and very determined that the Kosovo security force would be of a particular size and shape. I met Ajim Cheku, the former prime minister as well and former commander of the KPC. The, these individuals were driven by their political agendas. And whilst they, they clearly had in their own minds what was best for the country at heart, the uh, shenanigans, let's call them shenanigans, that always seem to happen around at the political level anywhere, uh, they were very much evident in Kosovo as well. So the, it was a very, it was a real balancing act to uh, broaden my network as much as possible and to, uh, and to understand how each different uh, group was uh, interacting with, with the process as a whole. But I think the, the one thing that I found really difficult, and, uh, and this is where the clash of cultures, I think, came in, clearly for the Kosovans, for the, those in the, in the political sphere, but also for those serving, they, they've lived in a clan-based environment for many, many years, and, and that means a lot to them that influences the way that they behave, that influences the way that they act and how they see 
um, they see their lives and they see the future. Uh, and, you know, to a lesser or greater degree, obviously, depending on the individual. But I found that in K4, there were some people who were, I think, frankly, ignorant of culture. And, and again, I, I've talked about a couple of examples in the book, one in particular, where there was such a mistrust of the Kosovans that they were working with that um, it was almost, I was almost embarrassed actually to, to, be, to be part of the same organization as, as the, the, these, these other uh, individuals in K4, purely because they completely missed the point. So within K4 you had, and, and also you had those non-recognizing countries in K4 who were actively not recognizing the very country that they were deployed in. And so that in itself, uh, also created many issues um, throughout the process. And so it was complex. I mean, these things always are, but uh, it, was, uh, it, it, was a very, it was a very trying time. And yes, there were definitely some moments when, uh, when, when as you say, that clash of cultures and the, and the, the mix of stakeholders, uh, nobody was going to be happy. Not everybody could achieve what they wanted to achieve. And, and that was... That was evident from quite early on in my tour. Great. And I'm sure, um, well, I'm sure you were aware there was an intense media coverage um, at the time. Can you just give your opinion on how you feel this reflected what was actually happening on the ground? And also, did the media coverage have any influence on events, either positive or negative? Yeah, thank you. I mean, that, that, that goes to the very heart of what happened in my, in my book. Um, and I think, and there was something that was really at the very heart of it that caused these problems. So in answer to the, that first part of your question, the, the media reported um, very accurately what they were being told. Uh, and, and they put that over their front pages and, and it was relentless. Um, but unfortunately, they were reporting on what people were saying to them from within the Kosovo Protection Corps, people who had a grievance, people who didn't understand the process people who didn't believe in the process, people who felt they were going to be left out to, uh, left out to dry. And the reason why the media were, so, um, were reporting uh, these stories so, I suppose, successfully is because K4 did not have a communications strategy for this transition. There was no authoritative uh, voice and, and story that was explaining what was happening and why things were happening. And so as a consequence of that, any media organization is going to just fill in the gaps themselves. Uh, when they see the most revered organization in Kosovo going on strike, that is interesting. And, uh, and so of course they reported all of this, but there was nothing challenging that storyline. There was nothing challenging that scenario and so as a result because K4 were uh, unable to or prevented from developing their own uh, communications plan and actually communicating that in a timely manner and explaining what was happening and why things were happening um, because of that the uh, there was a vacuum and and the media in Kosovo just filled it uh, with whatever they wanted to say uh, and frankly they had their favorites who were very willing to go on, on record and, and to talk to them. And because the Kosovo Protection Corps was going to be closing and would be dissolved soon, 
the entire idea of a, of a disciplinary code within the KPC had also gone out of the window. So these people knew that they could speak with impunity and, and it was, uh, and every time they did so, it was unhelpful. Uh, every time it did so, I would get called in to the, uh, the K4 comms uh, office and speak to their chief. And he would say, why is all this happening? And I would say the same answer, because you don't have a strategy that is, is out there countering it. Uh, and so as a consequence, a lot of things that happened during that six months could have been prevented had there been a professional, competent communication strategy deployed, and it wasn't. Uh, and so as a, as a consequence, the media did what the media do the world over. They went looking for stories and they filled their front pages with it uh, as, a, as, a, as a consequence. As I say, the media just uh, went to town. But I, I spoke to the chief and I said to him, look, something has to be done here because there's nobody getting the truth out into, uh, into, the, into the media space at all. So we cooked up a plan um, and I, I proposed that I identify a journalist who I can set up as a back channel and, and um, quietly brief him on what was happening, why things were happening, so that we could at least get uh, one story out there that was telling the truth, was telling it as it, as it was meant to be. And in fact, we, we ended up with two back channels into the media, uh, one for me and, and one for um, the senior general who was working for the UN at the time. Um, he also recognized the need for the media to be uh, better informed. Uh, and so um, quite below the radar, uh, that is exactly what started to happen. Um, now, whether it really made a difference, uh, you know, time will tell, historians will, will tell, but um, we felt at the time we needed to do something and, uh, and, and it, seemed like, uh, it seemed like the right thing to do. And, and, and surprisingly, it was authorised within K4 for me to be able to do that and for us to be able to do that. So we tried to counter it, but it was through rather unusual means. And so looking back, can you just briefly highlight some of the key changes which happened during your six month deployment? And how you think these deployments which took place under NATO's watch have affected Kosovo over the last sort of decade? And um, what the situation's like over there now? And have you been back to visit since your deployment? Um, so since 2009, I left in February 2009. And uh, a lot has changed. During my six months, we uh, we effectively closed down the, the Kosovo Protection Corps. We created a new force, the Kosovo Security Force. That has now been uh, growing steadily over the years. And, uh, and I did go back in 2018 and I managed to interview and speak to a number of people who were intimately involved in the process at the time, including the uh, now commander, General Rama, uh, who was the deputy of the KPC, uh, as well as other officers who I got to know at the time. And and was able to see when I returned to Pristina in, in uh, 2018. I also was able to see the Prime Minister in 2018, Ramush Haradinaj, and ask him about his view of how the Kosovo security force had progressed over the, over the years. And I think <clears throat> the one word that describes um, what I saw when I went back was pride. A pride that uh, the organisation that uh, had started in such a fragile state because of a whole range of activities that uh, are all described uh, in the book. The, the fact that the Kosovo Security Force has become such a, 
a model organization within Kosovo. It's the most respected public body in Kosovo. And they've got some amazing young people who are joining and training overseas and, and winning awards overseas. And for a very small country to be uh, beating uh, other overseas students to, uh, to, these, to these accolades, uh, it, it's a fantastic reflection on the kind of people who are coming through in, this, uh, in the younger generation within Kosovo and who feel that they want to contribute to their, to their nation and contribute to their country. And they're doing that by joining the Kosovo Security Force. So a lot has changed. And, and I think now the Kosovo Security Force is ready for, for a further transition from, from being a, a security force uh, into an army. And that, and that is, of course, what everybody is focused on in, in Pristina at the moment. And can you see that happening anytime soon in the near future? Or? Yeah, well, that, that, is, that is absolutely the uh, challenging question. Um, there's opposition to the idea from, uh, clearly, there's opposition to the idea from Serbia, who believe that, uh, that Kosovo w- uh, would, would then presumably want to go and do something beyond their borders, but I really can't see that that is uh, on the cards at all. Of course it's not. Um, it's all about self-determination. And, and of course, Serbia does not want that to happen. And Serbia are tying in uh, a, any sort of future settlement with Kosovo um, to, uh, to the fact that they don't want them to have an army um, because of, of what uh, having an army as opposed to having a lightly uh, equipped security force uh, implies. And there are members of the international community who are putting pressure on um, the government in, in Pristina not to go down that path. But of course, the international community would say that um, because they don't want to see uh, a, a rise in tension and they don't want to see an escalation, particularly between uh, Serbia and, and, and Kosovo, but also within the Serbian enclaves within Kosovo and those communities inside Kosovo's border. But I think those people don't understand uh, the Kosovans. I don't think they understand the leadership of those in, in Kosovo. And, and I think primarily that's the reason why there is opposition to this uh, ambition to, to have a, a fully recognised army. And, and I think it will happen. It's just going to be a question of time. But uh, I, I think there are going to be those who are going to make it very difficult and, uh, and make sure that there are uh, plenty of strings attached to, to, to that uh, idea going forward. So we're now going to move on to the feature section of the podcast where we take a closer look at the author behind the book. So if I can start with the challenges of your work-life balance that you mentioned. So you mentioned obviously pushing your daughter on a swing in a park in the UK one day and the next day being in Kosovo. Could you elaborate slightly on the difficulties you faced and also how you overcame them? Um, As this is a subject I'm sure a lot of our military audience can identify with. Yes, I'm sure there will be many people who are listening to this and will recognise the the challenges of, of leaving home and leaving your family behind when you're deploying somewhere that's is not completely safe, um, but there's uh, no real idea about what's going to happen over that over the period of the deployment. For me, it was six months. I used that 
um, story about pushing my daughter um, because within a few days of that, of being in Kosovo, I was, as described at the beginning of the podcast, I was involved in something that was really quite serious and, and I had an active part in, in, in that conversation. But, you know, that was within a few days. Uh, it's exciting when you go away and when you're in, in, certainly in the military, but I think anybody who deploys overseas, whether in a diplomatic role or, or perhaps even working for an NGO, it's always exciting initially, but as time goes on and as, the, as you get more and more dragged into and immersed in the, the business that you're involved in, so it becomes harder to find a release valve. I think if you're in the military in particular, if you deploy as part of a larger group, a battalion or a brigade or, 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 or regiment and so on, you've got friends around you and you can share experiences and you can talk to them. When you're going as an individual, you've got to create new relationships with people and, and you don't immediately trust people I mean, you, because you need to know them first and you need to know what you can say to them and so on. So I found that it was extremely difficult to be able to share some of the stories that I was experiencing when I was phoning home. I had young kids at the time and, and I often phoned at the wrong time because I had no routine and so I was not able to phone every day at seven or every other day or even once a week at a set time. I needed to call whenever I could and, and actually it, it had a, a disproportionate effect on me. I mean, frankly, unless you've been in that position, it's really hard to try and understand. But having a phone call and trying to speak to my son and my daughter, as I say, who were you know, under nine years old at the time, both of them, if that phone call was not good, if something went wrong in that phone call because of a whole range of different factors, the impact on me was, was really quite profound. And there was one occasion where, and I describe it in the book, and I, I find it very upsetting even to read the words that I've written myself, that my son was playing up like you know, boys of that age do. And I was asked to speak to him. My, my wife phoned me and said, can you come and talk to our son? And I was under pressure. I was tired. I was uh, not well because I, I, was, um, I had a, an illness throughout my tour. And I, was, I, I snapped a little bit with him. And, and, you know, you don't shout at your kids at the best of times. I know you do, but you, you want to avoid doing that. But shouting at them down Skype... Um, on a Skype connections, just even worse. Uh, and I immediately regretted it. And, uh, and I mean, that's an example. That didn't happen. That only happened the once, thankfully. But, but it's indicative of the challenge that I had. It, it, the, the impact on me from that one phone call that didn't go so well really affected my mood, really affected my, my morale. Uh, and when you're away, you, you know, you don't need to be distracted by uh, by things that are going to reduce your ability to do your job, and and that was something that I really I struggled with, and um, and because I was unable to really share what I was doing, and I wasn't always able to have great conversations because of timing, um, it, it added to the challenge of 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 just trying to execute what I was meant to be doing to the best of my ability, and and so I suppose that that was the overwhelming challenge for me. And I suppose um, children are sort of mid to late teens now. Do they 
sort of understand um, everything now as not as shocking as it was at the time? I think that they recognize what I did in my career and my military career and what I've done since, but I don't think they have many memories of, of me being in Kosovo and I've actually written in the acknowledgements in the book that I'm actually glad that's the case. Um, so they can look back, you know, just as somebody who's interested in what their, um, what their dad did when uh, they were younger, I think. Okay, great. And you said about your military career, what's been the, have you got a single highlight of your military career in general, not just focusing on the time in Kosovo? I knew you were going to ask me this question. Do you know, there, was, there are so many things. I don't know if I've got one highlight. I, I, Kosovo was a, was a professional highlight, I suppose. Um, Baghdad, deploying to Baghdad in 2004 it, because of the madness of, of conflict and, and what was happening out there, that, that you know, isn't far from my mind. I was privileged to command Gurkha soldiers and, and that absolutely was a highlight of my career because of the the extraordinary nature of, of, a, of, of the Gurkhas and what they do and how they operate uh, and, and the opportunity to go to Nepal and, and learn the language. It, was, uh, it really was uh, fantastic. But I suppose the overall highlight of my career is just the opportunity that I've been given to travel and to learn about different cultures and to, to see things that I know many, many people will, you know, are unlikely ever to see. And you know, not all, not all the bad, not all the, you know, the, not many people would want to necessarily have been in Baghdad in 2004, but, but I've, been, I've been lucky to go to many other places. And so I suppose as a highlight of my career, that, that would, I guess, sum it up. Great. And just going back to your deployment in Kosovo, is there a single highlight of that particular deployment um, or a single main challenge that you experienced? Well, I've, I've made lifelong friends. I spent time really understanding and, and being uh, immersed in their culture. And I think I made a difference, albeit maybe a small turn of the dial, but I think I made a difference. And, and I would like to think that I, my legacy is a small legacy, but nonetheless, I'd like to think that I contributed uh, positively to the creation of that new force, the Kosovo Security Force. But definitely the friendships. Um, the people I met there were extraordinary. And... I'm still in touch with them now and I'm hoping to go back over to Pristina next year because I'm hoping to get um, the book translated into Albanian and, and then to attend uh, a book launch, COVID-19 permitting um, in Pristina at some point in 2021. That sounds great. And the sort of main challenges, I know you've mentioned the sort of language barrier which was an issue when you didn't have your interpreter with you, but are there any other sort of general challenges? Uh, well, drinking raki before 10 o'clock in the morning um, was a constant challenge. I was often invited to have a glass by one, one particular individual who I won't name to save him, um, but always, and, and raki was always drunk with some uh, sparkling water. Uh, I don't know why, maybe it, it accentuated the effect or negated it. I, I never really worked out because I, I was occasionally required to... Um, you know, for Queen and Country to, to, to do something like that. And uh, yeah, that was challenging. I did once have two um, in the morning uh, and, and the rest of the day was a complete write-off. And uh, I've, you know, I just, uh, I, everything was a blur and I was doing my best, uh, you know, not to take responsibility for anything, including myself. So uh, I was lucky I had a driver bodyguard to, uh, to take me back uh, to my accommodation 
safely on that particular occasion. But joking aside, um, there were many challenges. Um, I mean, I, we've talked a little bit about uh, understanding and gaining trust within the Kosovan uh, environments, but I needed to get on with uh, other NATO nations. You know, we were all working in uniform up in uh, Film City. We had uh, the Italian leadership had moved in a week after I, uh, I took up my post uh, for, for their one-year annual rotation of commanding K4. And, and, and NATO countries do things differently. Uh, and, and Brits, we do things differently to other nations. And we have a different ethos and we have a different uh, mentality. And so there were times when, when some of those understandings didn't necessarily go as well as I would have wanted them to. Okay, so you mentioned having a bodyguard. I mean, did you ever personally feel in danger or at risk during your time there? Honestly, no, I didn't. I, I felt that my British Army uniform was my body armour. I didn't believe that anybody would harm me, um, not, notwithstanding the roads, which were terribly dangerous, and they wouldn't have known who I was. So, I mean, if I'd have been taken out in a car crash, then, you know, so be it. But, Great, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to produce this podcast and offering such a fascinating insight into your personal first-hand experiences of your deployment to Kosovo and also your personal life um, in general. Thanks very much, Danny. You have been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen, Aisha Khan and Danny McDivitt from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast. Podcast.